The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning once again. Before we get started this morning, I wanted to remind you all that uh, we do a gift drive and also a food drive during the holiday season. So we did a food drive during Thanksgiving uh, for about 50 families in our community, just giving them uh, Thanksgiving-type food a couple weeks ago. And then we do a gift drive for those, fa- those same families uh, here in December. And that all culminates next Sunday, December 10th, from 1230 to 2.30 over in the Creekside Building. We're going to be having a luncheon with those families, and many of them show up to our church, many for the first time. And it's our chance as a church to just put a face with our church name And so we would love to have many of you all sign up to be table hosts uh, next Sunday afternoon. And you can do that by uh, going to the the hub on the website. If you're new here, don't know what that is, the hub is on the right top corner of the church website. Click on the hub and then you'll see some uh, some links there for our our gift drive. And you can sign up to be a table host at uh, that luncheon next Sunday afternoon. So we would love to get those tables filled up. And yes, we also let the table host eat the food as well with those families. So just a great chance to connect with people in our community. Love to have those, uh, those slots filled up this week, um, if you can do that. So we're continuing, or we're starting our series in Advent uh, today. And uh, today is entitled, uh, Invited Into the Story. And uh, now I've lived in Texas for 27 years now. It's hard for me to believe that. And every year, Christmas sneaks up on me. I think it's because I grew up in a state where we, had, we actually had four distinct seasons. So the distance between uh, summer and Christmas just seemed like an eternity. But in Texas, it'll be 106 degrees, and then two months later, it's Christmas. It happens every, to me every year. Now, where I grew up, uh, we long for a white Christmas, but in Texas, I just long for a not hot Christmas. I'm dreaming of a not hot Christmas. Someone should write a song about that, I think. At least less than 80 degrees. Like, I'll take that. Um, this is also why we do fake fires here in Texas, because <laughs> we don't really need the real thing, right? So, uh, but when I think of this season, I think about the concept of hope. Because when you're, in the, when you're in the middle of another hot summer day, you can always look at the calendar and say, yes, but Christmas is coming. And there's this anticipation element with Christmas. And that's what hope is. It's a longing or an anticipation for something. Now, this word advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means arrival or coming. Now, this concept of hope, we at times think of hope as just like this uh, warm or sentimental feeling. It's not that. It's not that. Fleming Rutledge writes this, the, the great theme of Advent is hope, but it is not tolerable to speak of hope unless we are willing to look squarely at the overwhelming presence of evil in our world. If you're hoping or longing for something, it implies that there might be some present suffering. That's the nature of hope. And that was also true in the story of Israel. Whenever we open up the story, we're going to see into the heartache and longing of a people. So Christmas begins with suffering. So for Israel, God's last words at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, 
Now, for Israel, no matter how bad things were for them, they, they could always say, the Messiah is coming. And so we leave off in Malachi chapter 4, the last words of the Old Testament that were written for the nation of Israel from the prophet Malachi. He writes this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These are the last words of the Old Testament. And this is referring to John the Baptist. This is not referring to Elijah coming back from the dead, but more someone like John the Baptist coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. We know that because Jesus tells us that in Matthew chapter 11. So not that Elijah would come back and return, but a similar kind of ministry would be found in the ministry of John the Baptist. So after Malachi was written, there was 400 years of silence for the nation of Israel. And the question is why? Why was God silent for 400 years? There was no prophet, no appearance of an angel, no inspired book during that time. What was God doing during that time? It's really interesting when you look back on what took place between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's 400 years between the Testaments. And one of the first things that we see is political changes. This is, uh, these are five different nations ruled the Middle East. There was Persia and Greece Egypt, Syria, and Rome. So there's major political changes happening during that time. Then we have religious changes. Uh, the Jews began to have a new zeal for the law. You'd see the, the start of new parties like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and new institutions like synagogues and Sanhedrin. I know we tend to link uh, Pharisees and Sadducees and these institutions with negative, and I understand why we do that when you read the Gospels, but at least the way they began was an attempt to be, live as a pure people in a pagan culture in that time. That was their initial intent. Now, then we get to cultural changes. Spread of Greek language and highway system and relative peace in the empire. So the, 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 a more common language that everyone seemed to understand, the Greek language, and there's a highway system and there's relative peace, and this would all allow for this quick spread of the gospel. And so what do we learn here? We learn that just because God is silent doesn't mean he's not working. He's working behind the scenes so that this message can go out quickly to the world. Now turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, where John the Baptist's birth is foretold. And this is the first prophet since the prophet Malachi. After 400 years, God breaks his silence and he is finally sending a prophet to make way for Jesus. So look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So Herod was a king. He was a puppet king appointed by Rome, and he was referred to as the king of the Jews. Now, he was this paranoid and ruthless man. He had one of his wives murdered. He murdered two of his own sons because he felt like they'd be a threat to his throne. One emperor said, it's better to be Herod's dog than to be one of his children. That's what other people thought of Herod. He's the one who would uh, go on to kill many of the baby boys at the time of the birth of Christ, under the age of two. 
He wanted to see himself and wanted others to see him as the Davidic king, the fulfillment of prophecy. He wanted to see himself as that. This is why he went and killed these babies, thinking that I don't want, I don't want one, of those, one of those to become the king of the Jews. And so he wanted to make himself be this fulfillment of what the Bible had prophesied. One of the things that he did to endear himself to the Jewish people was he built them a temple, a beautiful temple. And during this time, Jews didn't have, they were not required to practice Roman religion. They could practice and worship their own God in their own way. And so Herod wanted to make a name for himself. And so he took on these huge building projects. Many times in the large bricks and stones, he would put his initials, his insignia, so that people would not forget who it was that gave them these great, incredible structures. So one of those, of course, was the Jewish temple. And so just imagine that, that there's this, this pagan king who built the Jewish temple. This is what it may have looked like. This temple was massive, and it required 10,000 men, 10 years, just to build the retaining walls. The platform on top could hold up to 24 football fields. The highest point was 16 stories tall. And this temple, right here in this temple, is where our story takes place. So notice the contrast in the opening words of of Luke chapter 1, that Herod is this this powerful figure. And he's placed there by Rome. And then you have Zechariah, who's just another priest. He's one out of 300 in the family of Abijah. And the name Zechariah was a common name back then. But do you know what that name means? It means the Lord has remembered. It's not a coincidence that God would speak for the first time in 400 years to someone whose name means the Lord has remembered. So Zechariah is this elderly, faithful priest, and he's married to a faithful woman named Elizabeth, and they've never had children. In that day, infertility wasn't just an emotionally traumatic thing like it would be for many of us today, but it was also dangerous for an elderly couple to not have anyone to take care of them in their old age. Today we have things like you know, 401Ks or we have savings of some kinds that can hopefully sustain us until the end. But in that time, all you could hope for was have a bunch of kids, hopefully one of them strikes it rich and can take care of you um, until you might pass away. And so they think to themselves, it's not just the sadness of not having a child, but it's the reality of there's no one to take care of us. And this is a dangerous place for them to be as an elderly couple. So at this point in their lives, they had probably accepted that they would never hear their child's first words. They would never get to walk them to the temple or or pass Israel's story down to the next generation. And you can think that for someone like this, who this is a a ministry couple, a couple that's involved in ministry back in that time, that they could easily fall into the trap of thinking, we're we're doing all this work for God and, and representing him before the people of God, and yet God hasn't come through for us. And that could lead to maybe thoughts of bitterness and anger towards God. But we don't really see that so much in their life because it says here they were were blameless before God. They they, they were righteous before God. And so God, uh, for them, their pain was, was personal, but it was also national. Because God was silent to the nation of Israel, but Elizabeth's womb was kept silent as well. So now the scene of this story occurs in the holy place of the temple. 
And you see Israel had 18,000 priests, all broken down into divisions. And each division would serve two weeks per year. And when your division, is, when your division served, they would cast lots to see what role you would have. And this time the lot fell to Zechariah to burn incense in the holy place. And this was a really big deal because they're casting lots. So what are the chances this will happen twice in someone's lifetime? The chances are not good. It would happen even one time, much less twice. And this is a once in a lifetime event. So this happened for a priest. He may let his family and friends know, hey, I'm going to be burning incense. I get to burn incense in the holy place of the temple on this particular day. And a large crowd would be outside praying and the incense, as it would go up towards the, the, the heavens, it represented their prayers, the people's prayers to God. And so while Zechariah is inside this temple, an angel shows up, and now he's terrified. And in our context, we imagine angels as these uh, cute little beings that we put on the top of a tree or display on a Christmas card. But in the Bible, angels were never cute. They struck fear. They made people very, very afraid. So look at verse 11 of Luke chapter 1. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So when Luke writes, I want you to take notice of something. Look and see how he includes these random details like the angel being on the right side of the altar of incense. There's no reason to say something like that unless Luke interviewed Zechariah directly or talked to someone who had talked to Zechariah. And so just an example of how you can see, I think, the truthfulness of Scripture. These are eyewitness accounts that are being shared with uh, the writer here, um, Luke, as he writes these things. Now, whenever an angel says, do not be afraid, you should probably be very afraid. And this is really an incredible image in this story because Zechariah is old, his wife is barren, but he is still praying for a child. It is most likely scientifically impossible for her to bear children, but he hasn't lost hope. And so I believe that when he's in this, this holy place, he's praying for a couple of things. One of those is he's praying for a child for he and his, his wife. He never allowed God's silence to destroy his hope. And I wonder if for us, is there an area of life where we've done that? You've allowed, we've allowed God's perceived silence to destroy our hope of what God might do. We have to understand that just because he seems silent doesn't mean he's not working behind the scenes and getting something prepared, getting something ready so Zechariah, he, he goes in the holy place and most likely prayed for the nation, and I think he prayed for a child. So a corporate prayer and a personal prayer. How many times must he have prayed for this? How many times at home must, must he and Elizabeth, you know, clasp hands and prayed fervently for God to deliver them a child? He prayed for many years, he probably cried many tears, and now he gets this incredible news against all odds that it's going to happen. This news comes from this angel. Look at verse 14, it says, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must, he must not drink wine or strong drink, 
And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. You know how whenever your kids are born, uh, you, you have this feeling of you're excited and as you are standing over their crib at night, maybe praying over them, and you just think about all the possibilities of what that, what that little baby might become one day. And so you have this excitement of what they're going to grow into, but you also have this feeling of, of, of nervousness and some anxiety, like, yeah, what, what might this baby become, right? And we have those kinds of thoughts sometimes. But Zachariah and Elizabeth, they had this joy and confidence from the beginning that not only will they have a baby, but he's going to have this special purpose, this special calling placed upon his life by God. So John, it says here, John wasn't to drink wine, not because it was sinful, but his life had this special calling. This might be like the the Nazarite vow over in Numbers chapter 6, where there was if you took a Nazarite vow, there was to be no, no wine, but also nothing else from the vine. So that means no, no Welch's grape juice, no sun-made raisins, which, in my opinion, not being allowed to eat raisins isn't really a loss for anybody. But, but some would take this vow for a time, others for a lifetime, kind of like the discipline of fasting. And that was to be John's calling. Now, here's the crux of the whole passage. This is his purpose. Verse, verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this is the echo of the prophet Malachi. That John is going to show up and he's going to turn the hearts of people back to God. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. When I think of John the Baptist, I think of my grandfather, who was a farmer. And every year, whenever the, the snow, snow is this white stuff that we have where I'm from, and it would be on the ground, and it, once it would thaw out and it would melt, um, they'd wait for the ground to dry a little bit, and then my grandfather would, would plow the field and, and plow the field up next to our house. And then whenever that would kind of dry out, he would take this big thing called a disc, and he would disc up the field and break up all the, the lumps of, the large lumps of dirt on the field. Then he would prepare the, the field to, to plant a crop. And he would do that every single year. He would do that routine over and over again. He would get the soil ready. And this is the role of John the Baptist. And so when you look at this, I, these ideas here in Luke 1, this is really about spiritual revival. The nation of Israel knew a lot about God, but their hearts had become hardened like that dry ground. And John's role is to come along and to till up the soil so the seed of the gospel could take root and so love for God could grow and flourish in the nation. And I think that we still need, we still need revival today. But it doesn't stop there because spiritual revival, we see it here, spiritual revival leads to family renewal. John's mission was to point people to Jesus, but when that happens, we see families change. We see families become transformed when they're transformed by the gospel. So part of this, his mission was to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And I know for, for us men, we don't realize sometimes like how the influence that we have on our kids spiritually I know for me sometimes I miss that 
Because I think of many of our, 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 our women in our church are so good at keeping their, their finger on the pulse of where the kids are at spiritually. And so for a lot of our moms, as they follow Christ, they, they understand that they, they, they seem to look inward more at the family and the family dynamics and what's taking place there, relationships and how things are going in their walk with God. And we as dads sometimes get distracted and, and, and tend to only look more outward at the outside world of what's happening um, in our jobs, our careers. And we tend to think of those things primarily sometimes. And we forget that our hearts need to be turned a lot more towards our kids. And so Nancy uh, Piercy, in one of her books, she mentions, mentions a psychologist named Vern Bankston. And this man, this psychologist, did a 35-year study on families. He found that 68% of children who have a close bond, that's the key phrase, close bond with their father, will carry on their father's level of faith participation. Now listen, this is not meant to sound like a formula. This is just what he has observed. And he writes this. He says, fervent faith cannot compensate for a distant dad. A father who is an exemplar, meaning a great example, a pillar of the church, but doesn't provide warmth and affirmation to his kid, does not have kids who follow him in his faith. So it's not enough for we as fathers to just simply teach the Bible doctrine and teach the right things and to be a good moral example. Those things are really important, to be a good moral example and to teach the right things to our our kids and our family. Those are important things. But the key idea here is a close bond. It says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. That implies there, there's a close bond, something that goes beyond just teaching the right things and just being a right and good moral example. It goes beyond that. And if, if, that, if that statement convicts you like it does me, and if, if your kids are now out of the house already and you think, well, it's, it's too late, I've, it's, I've blown it, it's too late, I would say to you, that's not true. It's not too late. You can still make that right. There's still time to make that right. And I think that you can do that. Have you noticed that whenever our heart grows cold towards God, it grows cold towards our kids? That's what I've seen in myself. So we need spiritual revival, but that leads to family renewal and families being transformed by the gospel. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I love the wording of this because he just comes out and says, He says, Listen, I'm an old man. He just cuts to the chase. He just comes out and says it, but my wife, she's uh, advanced in years. <laughs> Sounds a little better when he says that. Now, when the Bible says someone's old, that means they're old, right? And then look at verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. There are only two angels in the Bible mentioned by name, and this is one of them. The other one's the archangel Michael. So if you get one of them, it's a pretty big deal. Now, you, can, you might detect in these words, 
there might be a little angel sarcasm here. It sounds like he's saying, how will you know this will happen? Well, I don't know. An angel will show up and tell you. And he just says, he says, listen, I'm Gabriel. I'm kind of a big deal. Uh, You see that curtain over there, the Holy of Holies? If anyone but the high priest goes in there, they're struck dead. I live there. I dwell in his presence all the time. I'm with God all the time. And I was sent by God to tell you that your wife's going to get pregnant. And so the next thing to happen, the sign is that your wife is going to get pregnant. There are no other things that are going to happen here. Then he says, but wait, there's more. Look at verse 20. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So after this really good news, the moment is soured with some bad news. And he delivers some bad news because Zechariah didn't believe the word from God. God's going to take away all his words. And now he can't even speak for the next nine months. I mean, just imagine how hard that would be to have a thought and, and now you can't, he can't even speak and say the words. So Gabriel says, okay, Zechariah, you want a sign? Well, here's, you have the sign. The sign is silence. God was silent for 400 years. You'll be silent about nine months. This baby is going to cry before you speak your next word. So the lesson to be learned here is don't ever make an angel angry. (laughs) But what is God doing with this? Doesn't it seem a bit extreme? We see examples all over the Bible of people expressing doubt to God, and they don't get punished for it, at least not in ways like this. So why this? I believe that Zechariah went beyond just simple doubts and that he committed the sin of disbelief. He didn't trust that God could do the impossible. So I don't believe this is punishment, but more like discipline. I heard Pastor uh, J.D. Greer, a pastor in North Carolina, use this analogy to describe this, to show the difference between uh, discipline and punishment. And he said, would you ever want someone to stick a knife in your chest? Well, that depends on who they are. If it's someone trying to kill me, then of course not. But if it's a heart surgeon trying to save my life, then yes. So this time of silence was God doing some heart surgery on Zechariah. Hebrews chapter 12 has a lot to say about God disciplining those he loves. I saw this from a former student recently on social media. He just had this vague post about God doing stuff in his life, and he posted this passage, and I really thought this connects. Hebrews 12, 11, it says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So for Zechariah, not being able to speak must have felt painful and a very difficult thing for him, but eventually it bore the fruit of righteousness. I'm sure that many of you can relate to this, that God has done things in your life that at the time felt extremely painful, and it felt like punishment, but really it was discipline, and God's doing a work so that you can bear the fruit of of righteousness. Daniel Darling writes, this affliction was less of a punishment and more of a gift from God. To not speak would be to sit in silence before God to quiet the chattering of the soul and the noise of his circumstances. This is a work God seeks to do in the heart of all of us, 
we just finished a series on the spiritual disciplines, and one of those was silence and solitude. So this was like a forced spiritual discipline for Zechariah. You know, sometimes God needs to quiet us so that we can hear him. We can hear his voice. He wants us to be still so that we can see him on the move. One of the things about these stories, the Christmas stories, is that they're examples of God saying, just sit and be quiet and watch what I do. And this is happening in the life of Zechariah. It also happens, I think, um, as Jesus is born as well. Just sit and watch what I do. Watch my power. So Zechariah is there in the holy place inside the temple. And this encounter with Gabriel has left him utterly speechless. And there's this large crowd that's gathered outside that's waiting for him to return from being inside that holy place. Look at verse 21 where it says, And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Verse 24. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So Zechariah comes out of the temple, and there's this crowd waiting for him there. And normally a priest would pronounce a blessing on the people, or if he'd received a revelation from God, he would share that with the crowd. But there would be no speaking on this day. All he can do is make some hand motions and play charades with the crowd. And so he goes home to his wife. And we don't know if he tried to say anything to her. Maybe he wrote down some words or maybe he drew a picture of what happened there in the temple on that day. But just imagine that day for Elizabeth. Like she gets a baby and a husband who can't speak all in one day. God answered both of her prayers. Every argument for the next nine months, she wins. Whatever topic she wants, to, whatever question she has for Zechariah, she just says, I can't hear you. I'm just going to do what I want to do. So listen, the point of this story isn't that if you pray hard enough, God's going to give you what you desire. That's not the point of the story of John the Baptist. He might give you what you desire, but if he does, that's simply a gift from him. Ultimate joy won't be found there. Now, we know there's some joy and gladness that's found in this story with having the birth of their first son, John the Baptist. And we know that they got, got some joy and gladness, but, it's, but it wasn't ultimate joy and gladness. You see, Zechariah most likely died before John grew out of childhood, unable to take care of him and his mom in, in their old age. Zechariah probably never saw grandkids Never got to experience the blessing of that. You see, having a child for them took away the barrenness of, of Elizabeth's womb, but it could not take away the barrenness of their soul. Another baby would have to do that. His name would be Jesus. And so in his prophecy, as you'll see in just a moment, when Zechariah just belts out this prayer to God and this prophecy for the nation, 
When he says those words, you're going to see him say a lot more about Jesus than he says about his own son, John. And if you think about John the Baptist, he's a a well-known person in Christian history. But what is he known for? He's known for just one thing. And it's to be a forerunner to Jesus, to make way a people prepared for the coming of the Lord. His whole life purpose was to point people to Jesus. That was it. Didn't have some amazing career. Didn't make a lot of money. He did nothing in and of himself of notoriety except point people to the Savior, to Jesus Christ. That was it. And that is our purpose as well. Our life purpose should be to point people to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so later in our story, Elizabeth, she finally gives birth and family and friends have gathered around and everyone's asking what they're going to name him. Everybody assumes it's going to be just Zachariah like the father. It was common to name a son after their father. But Elizabeth insists that his name is going to be John. And so the crowd, of course, thinks this is a a mistake. And so they make these hand signs of Zachariah asking what his name is going to be. And Zachariah asks for a writing tablet. And he writes these words, his name is John. In this moment... Zacharias surrenders his heart to God and the silence is broken. And he just belts out this prophecy. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God, we thank you for sending someone like John the Baptist, someone that could come and and till up the soil of the hearts of Israel. We pray that you would do that in us during this holiday season especially. We pray that you would, as we go throughout the year, we so often just grow, grow, grow cold and stale in our walk with you. We pray, God, that you would begin to till up that ground as we prepare for this season. God, make it a time of renewal, not just with you, but also with our families, that you would do something different and transformative in the people that are in this room, Father, the families that that sit in these seats. Can we pray that you would do that in us and not just for our church, but for our city. We pray that we'd be an example 
and a vessel of blessing to the city in which we live, pointing people to you, because that is our purpose, our primary purpose. We pray this in your name. Amen.